Welcome to my mommy's podcast. This episode is brought to you by Beekeepers Naturals, superfood products from the hive that help support your family's best health. Right now, their propolis has been a lifesaver with all of the sniffles and coughs that are going around where we live. If you're not familiar with it, propolis is a resinous mixture that bees make in the hive. It contains over 300 compounds that we've identified, including polyphenols and compounds that are antibacterial, including one called pinocembrin, which I hope I'm saying right, which acts as an antifungal. Some studies have shown that propolis can speed the healing of wounds. It's naturally antibacterial and antifungal properties make it great for fighting the sniffles. And the way I use it, at the first sign of any sniffles, sore throat, or coughing at our house, I spray propolis in the throat, and it almost always helps us bounce back really quickly. I also always use propolis spray in my mouth before flying to avoid picking up anything on the plane. I also have unfortunately learned from experience that it works great on burns and cuts for healing. As a listener of this podcast, you can save 15% on propolis and all Beekeepers Naturals products by going to beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash wellnessmama and using the code wellnessmama, all one word, all lowercase. So again, that's Beekeepers Naturals, B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S-N-A-T-U-R-A-L-S.com forward slash wellnessmama and the code wellnessmama to save 15%. I am so excited to finally be able to share a top secret project I have been working on for literally years because this episode is proudly sponsored by Wellness, a new company I co-founded to create safe, natural, and obsessively tested products for families. I'm sure you've heard that most of what you put on your body gets absorbed through your skin and enters into your body. We turn this idea on its head, creating products that aren't just safe to put on your hair or on your skin or in your mouth, but that are actually beneficial because they contain things that your body needs in a way that can get through the skin. We started with the toughest first, creating the first of its kind natural toothpaste that is free of fluoride and glycerin and that contains ingredients like green tea, neem, and hydroxyapatite to support the mouth. Our hair care, we have shampoo and conditioner for curly and straight hair, and it's free of harmful ingredients, but also contains things like lavender and nettle to support healthy, thick hair. I would love for you to be among the first to try it, and you can check it out now by going to wellness.com. So that's wellness with an E on the end, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S-E.com. Hi, and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com, and this episode is with someone who I personally look up to. Gabrielle Reese, otherwise known as Gabby Reese, is not only a volleyball legend, but she's also an inspirational speaker and leader, a New York Times bestselling author, and a wife and mom of three. She's a former professional beach volleyball player and Nike's first female spokeswoman. And she, to me, represents both athleticism and beauty and also is very inspirational as a parent and in her 20 plus year marriage, as well as in all the outreach that she and her husband Laird do in the health world and in their community and in fostering strong fitness and community around the world. And in this episode, we go deep on raising teenagers, on body image, on ways to nurture strong relationships, and about her new fitness system that she does with Laird called XPT, and which I've tried and love. So I hope you will enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Gabby, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. 
I'm so excited to chat with you because I have known about you and Laird for a really long time. And you are such an inspiration both in business and fitness and also as a parent and in your relationship. And I have so many directions. I can't wait to go with this interview. But I'd love to start off with um, a little bit of the fitness and body side because um, I've gone in my on my own kind of journey the last couple of years of learning to accept and love my body as it is. And I know that you were named one of the top five most beautiful women in the world and that you have obviously are a very beautiful woman, but I also know that you're taller than a lot of women. And I'm curious, have you ever struggled with body image issues because of that? Or if not, how did you avoid that? I think, so I didn't always live with my mother, but my mother, I moved sort of back in with my mother when I was seven and she's quite tall. She's a, uh, She was about six, two and a half, let's say before gravity started doing its thing. And I don't think I ever had a, an issue with being tall. I think what's hard as a young person um, is getting unusual amounts of attention. I think that's hard for any adolescent person. So if you if you ask me if I struggle with that, maybe I struggled there and also struggled just kind of realizing really early that, you know, like I wasn't going to be, it sounds so silly now, but like, uh, you know, you're, you're not going to be wearing the same fashion as other people because a lot of things don't fit. And, and also what could be in on trend sort of looks ridiculous on you because you're so tall. And so I think I just came to a level of, of acceptance. Um, and then I just did the normal amounts of torturing myself as a woman, you know, whether it's in your teens wanting bigger this or smaller that or straighter this. And then in your twenties, picking yourself apart. Oh, is that cellulite? You know, whatever weird things that we do to now, you know, this time of my life, it's like, am I going to look, look a little closer for lines and, and all the imperfections. So I think it's, it's been, a, it's been um, within reason, a reasonable amount, but I don't think my height, I think my height just forced me to get to accepting things quicker. That makes sense. I can see the blessing of that for sure. And you have daughters as well. I think you're, how old are your daughters? I have, my youngest is 11 and um, my middle is just turned 16 and uh, we have a 24 year old. Got it. So you are, like I said, I look to you for kind of a mentorship and advice in this realm because my oldest is only 13 and then I have an 11 year old daughter as well. And I feel like we're just on the cusp of all of these things as a parent and, and facing it as a parent is so different than facing it as a teenager myself. And so I'm curious if you have ways that you have worked with your daughters to build that body positivity or that self-worth and that self-love from an early age. You know, every kid is, is different and and in ways that they're similar, which is they sort of don't listen to their parents or believe their parents, but yet they're watching and they're probably taking what they like and leaving what they don't. And so I don't think it's on purpose. I just, by the nature of how I try to live, I just try to model behaviors that I believe in and that aren't self-destructive. It doesn't mean I don't have them. I just try really hard that they're not really, that they're not a part of my everyday life. And also the other women that I'm around. I think that that's a really important thing, which is we can't be all things to our children. And so if I can have uh, powerful, meaning intelligent or kind and loving and, or physically strong or, or, you know, or all of the above women that I'm drawn to, uh, my daughters are, are getting, you know, in Hawaii, they call them aunties. It's like they're getting impacted. And what's so great about y- young people is 
They are so very clever. And so let's say you're around a female who is just nitpicking every little bit of herself. Oh, I'm now I'm this age or my waistline or, you know, young people, they may not have the words for it, but they see very clearly um, what's happening. So I think when you model confidence and hard work and self-care and sort of the things you can be in charge of and also self-love, I think that's our best shot. That makes sense. And something that I've tried to consciously do with my daughters, and that I'm guessing probably came naturally to you, is to set examples of how amazing the body is for what it can do and not focusing so much on what it always looks like. And as an athlete, I'm sure that was something your daughter saw from you at a very early age was the amazing strength of the body and the incredible things it could do. And I know that that's very much still a part of your lives, but I'm curious, has that, is that something that they've picked up on and how you integrate that as a family? Yeah, it's funny. I, especially I'll see it in the older ones, you know, the young ones buck you when they're, cause you know, they don't really have as much freedom, right? So they're looking for self uh, identification or freedom more. And then in a way they stop, they push less as they get older because they have other freedoms. But I always, once I was started playing sports and, and sort of developed this relationship with my body as a tool and having an appreciation also for it as this, as this gift, this tool, um, you know, the avatar that kind of takes you on the adventure, they pick up on that as well and develop in addition to, I'm a female, how do I look? What size am I? What color is my hair and eyes? You know, oh, who is, where, what can this avatar do and where can it take me? And what experiences can I have with it? And am I going to appreciate when it's very powerful and it can, you know, lift something or jump in the air or what have you? Conversely, to like, you know, getting them to connect to it, their intellect. And their spiritual side, and one of my daughter, well, two of my daughters are actually very artistic and enjoy painting. So there's another sort of expression of the inner self and using the avatar to do that. So I think it's the more we can do that and sort of saying, you know, I'm, I'm not really my body, right? Like it's my essence and my spirit. And then, you know, just trying to manage that human side of insecurity and being critical, self-critical and things like that. I'm so glad you mentioned the freedom side because that's the thing that I only understand conceptually because I have, my kids aren't in that like driving phase yet. We're not quite there. Um, but I know it's important for kids like the work of a teenager is actually to start psychologically separating from their parents and to gain independence. And that sounds easy on paper and I'm sure much harder when you are actually going through that with your child. But I'm curious, are there ways you facilitated that with your daughters um, that have seemed to really work? And I'm, I'm definitely asking this somewhat selfishly as I'm about to be there myself. I think as parents, you know, the temptation to want to be in control, because if you think about it, when you have a new baby, they're so tiny and helpless and you sort of really do have to be in charge. It doesn't mean you can control when they cry or stop crying or when they want to sleep or don't sleep. Um, but just, you know, you really do have a high level of control of what's happening. And then as they grow and us being protective and not objective and, and kind of all these things, it, it makes it harder for us. And maybe even more with daughters than sons, I'm not sure. Um, but it, it's sort of really learning to let them go. And, um, and and listen, I've done that with all of my daughters. And at times, it's not that I regret some of it, but you sort of think, okay, I'm going to do everything I, ca I can to keep them safe and, and put them in good environments and around good people. But I'm not going to, like, I, I don't have... 
on my kids devices. I don't have everything. I'm not tracking every move and things like that because my whole thing is I'm trying to teach my children to manage themselves versus I'm controlling them. And I'm also hoping to avoid some major kind of snapback, like they finally get to college and then they flip out. But I will say that we've had experiences where I was like, oh, I regret, I regret not being sort of more of a controlling parent. Having said that, I sometimes feel like no matter which way we approach it, kids are going to go through things. They're going to choose things we wouldn't choose for them. They're going to make bad choices like we've made. Um, they might even, I don't want to say get hurt, but might be in situations that, um, you know, you thought you could control, but you couldn't. And so I have been really humbled by this idea of being, I'm not relaxed or have a lax sense of parenting, but I'm definitely not micromanaging because I, I just think in the long, long run, especially with the kind of people Laird and I are, that we would have kids that would really get radical. So I, I, it's, it's a natural thing to want to fight letting go of the control, but it's so necessary. And also when, when things don't feel like taboo, it's actually not as sexy for them to go through it. Yeah, that's such a great point. And, and to circle back to what you first said about modeling it versus forcing. And I think that's a, just such a different mindset and focus. And they feel it so much differently when we're modeling, but not forcing. And then they feel like they actually do have that freedom to make the choice. I think a lot of times, I mean, mine are still young, but they tend to actually want to make the choice that we would have probably chosen for them anyway, if we were controlling the situation. But then they have the autonomy of having done it themselves, which brings that ownership that we would want them to have as adults. And I've seen this in, with my background in nutrition, I don't even, like if my kids are not in my house, I don't control what they eat. I'm not micromanaging their food intake because I know they'll be fine if they eat something that wouldn't be what I chose for them once in a while. And at home, we eat clean, we cook healthy, but I'm not micromanaging their food choices because like you said, I don't want them to go to college and fast food was always taboo or sugar was taboo and that's all they want. And I think that applies, you know, to so many aspects of parenting, like you said. It's human nature, you know, even us as adults, I, I see it with myself, like, let's say we decide to do like a very short fast, like two days or something. I am already pissy and rebellious by lunch the first day, even though if you if it was just a normal day um, and I wasn't fasting, I could blow through that no problem to midday, not even thinking about food. But because someone has said to me, okay, we're not doing this, all of a sudden now I've kicked into like rebellion mode. And I don't, and I think that that is a big part of humans. And, you know, I just think getting people to understand their reasons why they do or don't do things is more powerful than forcing them. And, and even though your daughters are, are 11 and 13, you know, 13 is a defined human being with a point of view and opinions and likes and dislikes. And so we're better off trying to ride that out and help them, you know, drive their own vehicle than say like, well, I'm going to drive it for you um, and try to be as appropriate as as possible um, because, you know, they're going to get there and they're going to know stuff and see stuff and, and uh, better to, you know, make it an open door policy where there's real communication and dialogue. And then if you show them, you know, how it works for you in your value system, chances are they, they really do take a lot of the good stuff. 
Yeah, I think you're so right about that. And I'm curious, as far as keeping that open door communication and, and giving them chances to facilitate that conversation, are there anything that you've noticed over the years, things that have worked well in encouraging them or letting them feel like they have the freedom to come talk to you about stuff if it's hard without feeling judged or those kind of more sensitive things? It also depends on the kid. You know, I have one kid that it's not that she doesn't care what I think, but not as much. Like I have one of my daughters, I can look sideways because I have a million things on my mind about work and she's very sensitive and takes things personally. So I, I just, I find that, um, first of all, it's dealing with, with each individual person, but also being like very straightforward as a, as a parent, meaning not using guilt or manipulation, which is hard to do because sometimes that's easier. Um, and also being willing to say, okay, I'm going to give you the choice in this situation and I'm going to accept if it's, it's not what I would have done or wanted you to do, but I'm going to do the, do it in a way that supports and loves you. Because if you can't do it that way, then don't give them the choice because it's almost worse saying, oh, you have the choice and now I'm going to, you know, sort of torment you and with my disapproval the whole, the whole time. And, and so if you're not prepared, then you have to go, well, then this is the way it is. And I know that you don't love that, but that's how it is. Cause that's more honest. So I think it's like, there's so many dynamics. It's like their personalities, you know, sort of, what are we talking about? If it's like Cheetos, who cares if it's like going in a vehicle with somebody out later than you want, that's another conversation. So I think it's also what's the scenario. And that's why almost giving them small freedoms all along the way and teaching them sort of the power of that um, and how it's actually better for them. And then, so when they do move into these bigger choices and bigger freedoms and bigger decisions, um, they've had some practice. That makes sense. And I'm curious, maybe this applies more to when they were younger, but how you as a mom navigated them taking risk and especially um, like getting to make their own choices when they were little, when it came to things that were probably good for them, but also maybe a little bit scary. I know with Laird being a surfer and you guys do so many outdoor activities, um, was, were there ever times when it was hard to like let them do an activity and have to, have to like calm that mom reflex to be like, um, and I'm curious how you navigated that because I'm a big believer that kids need to climb trees and they need to be outside and they need to take risks to learn. It's like an important part of psychological development. And I'm curious how you guys navigated that. You know, I wish it was just the physical risks for me. That's so, so much easier than some of the nuanced emotional things. Um, there were times where Laird could put them into an, a situation more comfortably and safely than I would. And so what I also have learned is that kids oftentimes learn fear. And so it doesn't mean some are not more naturally fearful than others, but they also learn it. So the other thing I would do, honestly, is if he was in charge of it, I would just walk away. If it was something that really, it was just too hard for me as the mother to watch. And I also have a great deal of confidence in his, the way he chooses to do things. So I'm like, they don't need to see me because they're going to learn from me versus, you know, learning the freedom of calculated and intelligent risk from their father. That is such a great point too. Um, you're right. And I'm sure he has a unique talent of being able to do that. But I love that you brought up Laird because you guys, I also look to you as an inspiration of a long and successful and seemingly very happy marriage. How many years have you guys been married? Um, at the end of the month, we will have been married uh, 22 years and we've been together for uh, 24 years. That's amazing. Congratulations. Um, I'd love to hear firsthand from you some of the ways that you guys have really nurtured a strong marriage over the years, because it seems like there are some 
definite waves, kind of a pun intended, or roadblocks that come up. And I feel like I've encountered some of those even in my own life in the last couple of years, just that come with time and with changing as humans and with raising kids. So are there some things that you guys have done over the years that have really nurtured your marriage? You know, I think weirdly, both Laird and I are sort of selfish in a way so that what I mean by that is we're, we're very upfront about sort of our own personal needs. So, so for example, we're both willing to, to serve the greater good, the family uh, and everything that falls under that umbrella. So work and uh, maintenance of where you, you're dwelling, um, kids dropping off and picking up, whatever it is. Right. But neither one of us is unselfish enough to, you know, sort of lose ourselves in that. And so what's good about that is we're both kind of squeaky wheels, me less than him, but it's instead of like 20 years going by and nobody sort of said what they really needed or wanted, it's sort of like a constant form of checking in because it's like, Hey, I I need more attention or Hey, I know you're stressed out, but the way you were talking to me, I just don't love it. Hey, I want to sneak away and be alone with you. So I think that is very helpful because it keeps, you know, everything is transparent and out there and you always can deal with, you know, everything that's in front of you instead of guessing or got put under the carpet or it's been so many years, you don't even remember the, you know, the original impetus for the situation or the, or the tension, And even sometimes just having an open dialogue, I'll give you an example. So yesterday, for example, we both realized that we sort of had this small window, maybe we could connect and, and it got, um, you know, we had a miscommunication and, and kind of Laird was aggravated and I was like, well, yeah, okay. I'm aggravated too. But in the meantime, I'm doing 50 things and, you know, kind of don't take your crap out on me, but it, it don't, and it's very unlike us. We're not, we don't bicker. So it was unusual. And Yet it went through the whole evening, like the evening was stained with that disappointment or that whatever domestic frustration, whatever it, however it finds itself. And I just remember thinking when it was happening that I was aggravated, but I also have enough experience to be like, well, the good news is, is that, you know, it's always identified And it gives us a chance to work on it. And we might have to do it tomorrow. Both of us might be too tired or weird right now to actually get it done tonight. And so I think that is very helpful. I think we both take care of our our personal happiness. So I'm not looking or reliant upon Laird to sort of make me feel fulfilled, nor do I do that with my children. And I know Laird is the same. That is very helpful. I think figuring out how to be you know, whether it's even when my kids were really little, like 15 minutes, I always found the way to take care of myself. And I know that is a luxury to me, having had a job and have a, have a job that's sort of around fitness, because there's plenty of people who they commute, they go to the office eight, nine, 10 hours, they come home, they don't get those minutes. So I'm, I really understand that. And I think we have a level of respect for one another that is very high. So it kind of keeps everybody on their toes and on their best behavior. Um, there's not a lot of like careless things that are said back and forth to each other. And and I think also we have a lot, and I've said this many times, I think Laird and I have a very natural chemistry. So listen, that's something that no matter how great we were at communicating or whatever, um, I think that chemistry is helpful. And those are just some of the things I think that have been helpful. 
And it's a maintenance, right? Like I love when people go, oh, marriage is so much work. It's like, well, it's sort of just how life is. It's like training is a, a little bit every day. You brush your teeth every day. You make your bed. It's like marriage is a little bit like, hey, we got to tend to the garden. We've got to clear out the weeds. We've got to deal with it. It's not just going to run on its own. And and I think that that um, is something that we're both uh, pretty diligent about. I love that. And it seems like from at least what I know of you guys and what I've read from both of your work, that you're both very much strong individuals and have pretty strong personalities. So I'm curious, has that ever like caused tension or caused butting of heads? And if so, how do you balance that in a relationship? Because I know you also have written about your views on relationships and feminism and taken a kind of um, alternative view of that. And I've seen that on different news outlets. So I'm curious how you balance that in your marriage. You know, I you know, when I said it, I said something about submissive in the book. And, you know, there's some things I learned out of that, that word, for really obvious reason provokes a lot of people because at a time when things were not fair or or environments, it's not fair. That word is, is sort of an anchor. And I think the way that I intended it is of service. And so, for example, in my family, like everybody who's in a family, whatever kind of family, and whatever your role is in that family, we are all of service in that family. People are participating. And what I also was communicating is being, you know, a pretty, I think, a pretty strong female and one would call an alpha um, in the everyday world. I liked the dynamic of taking on the feminine role inside the house. And, and even if you're in a same-sex relationship, Someone takes on the masculine and someone takes on the feminine. And so that is, that's not to say that the female can't take on the masculine and the male takes on the feminine. Just in our dynamic, I was playing in that feminine role. And so I, I think a lot of people were uncomfortable by that, but it, I presented it and do it as a choice that in ways, I'll be honest, is, is probably harder in the way that the way my brain works and what I'm interested in getting done is so very different than Laird. And so in some ways more comes on my plate on a day to day because I'm better at doing all the tasks and the mega lists. But like, for example, last year, the fires came through Malibu. I'm not the one who stayed and fought the fire with the pump and saved my house. That was Laird. So I think it's also kind of saying, what are your strengths and what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What are your weaknesses? Can we work together? And, um, you know, you do that when you play sports and you, you, you learn to start to understand how to do that. So I just, I think I felt comfortable talking about that because I also recognized it as a choice. No one's telling me what to do. Laird is a very loving and kind husband, but it was just talking about this very specific dynamic between a husband and a wife or a couple, let's say any couple. And how does that work? Because you can't have, you know, two masculine energies or two feminine energies. You you know, people are, are taking different roles and sometimes it switches, but we, I think we do a pretty good job of being both very strong within our, our spaces But what I say is that we both leave our swords at the door. So when I come in, my my main objective is how can I make it better for Laird? How can I help him? And I feel that coming from him. So what you have is you have a level of cooperation versus antagonizing one another and slowing each other down and encumbering the process. I think both of us uh, believe separately and together that um, it's just a lot easier 
if you come with the attitude of service. That's beautiful. Yeah. Having that attitude of service versus what, like, and what can I give versus what can I get that changes the whole relationship, even I'm sure with your kids or in any relationship. And you mentioned you guys have a beautiful natural chemistry, but after over 20 years, are there things or ways that you guys have found to make sure you keep your connection strong? Is that something you regularly have touch points for or date nights or um, any tips on navigating that? I mean, honestly, and it obviously has different temperatures at different times. Cause if you have a newborn baby or like two little kids running around or, or whatever, I think, you know, you, you're, you have different types of schedules, but quite frankly, it's just having a regular intimate life. And so you're priming that pump and that's a language between the two of you that is thriving as well. And again, I can, I sometimes maybe oversimplify things, but I do feel at least in the case of Laird, and I don't think it's unique. Laird's language of love is they're, they're very, they're pretty straightforward. I think Laird wants to be encouraged to pursue his passions. I think he likes to feel, um, you know, respected. I think he really enjoys us all gathering and eating food and being a part of that. And, and one of his other languages is, is sex and intimacy. And I think with women, you know, we have, we have, uh, we're, we're tired and it doesn't occur to us sometimes some of us as much as, you know, maybe, as the, as the, you know, maybe it doesn't occur to me as much as it does to Laird, or I have like, would I rather finish off the last 13 things on my checklist than sneak away? And, um, I just think it's, it's realizing that, um, it's a very simple, natural, healthy act. And it's something that, um, makes things very fluid between us. So as far as forced or, you know, like Wednesday's date night, we don't do that. Um, I just think that we're both mindful of, hey, it's been a while since we've connected and we're that's going to be treated like a priority. It doesn't mean, you know, you, you get these huge romantic windows. Sometimes that's not practical. Um, you're, you know, it's like you're sneaking into a closet if your kid's taking a nap when you have little kids. It is what it is. But I think to ignore that part of the connection or to not take care of it. And I know it's hard, especially with people's busy lives. That for us seems to make parts of it easier, but it's also like we sit in the mornings between like six and six thirty. We connect, we talk about something we've read or the day, or there's just a moment, even if it's just a few minutes, that we sort of are connecting as human beings. And um, then you're getting to see your partner as like someone you really appreciate and value and respect as an individual human being. And just kind of do the best you can. There are days like maybe you'd want to even be with them and you just know there's no window. And sometimes just saying, hey, you know, I thought about it and I, you know, I know there's no window. Sometimes even for your partner to know that it's important to you, that it can be even valuable. That makes sense. And another thing I think you guys model beautifully is the importance of community and strong friendships and strong relationships in that sense as well. And you mentioned your daughters have other strong role models and women in their lives. And um, at least from what I know of you guys, it seems like this is something that you've done a really good job of is building a really strong community around you of friends and, and relationships. And I think this is in the modern world, something many people struggle with because the more technological things get and the more we move into these kind of divided areas and we aren't as much in human contact with people, we lose that. So are there things you guys have done intentionally to build community or to foster those relationships? I, 
I'm not sure if it was so deliberate. I think maybe when there's a practice, you know, for example, when Laird uh, was surfing in the early nineties, they had a crew there that they called strapped. It had about eight or nine guys and, and they were sort of working together to, to create a sport that they could all uh, enjoy and each person contributed, had different input about ways to improve the sport, things like that. So me playing on a team, uh, when you start to realize, you know, the power of community, maybe organically, then you might subconsciously seek it out. So I think both of us experienced the power of community very early and then just said, okay, well, what do we, what can we contribute? Because we all have something to contribute, each and every one of us. And can I give that to my community or my tribe? And then from there, you know, if you have no expectation, uh, it usually works out, you know, really, really well. And there might be people you kind of have to kick out of your community. There might even be people in your community that you don't hang out outside of, let's say, one activity. And knowing that that's okay, too. Like, we're not best friends with every person that comes to train at the house. It's it's an agreement. We've all agreed to gather to help one another, to push each other towards this positive goal. And then we might go on with our lives. So I think that that's how we kind of stumbled upon it. Gotcha. This episode is brought to you by Beekeepers Naturals, superfood products from the hive that help support your family's best health. Right now, their propolis has been a lifesaver with all of the sniffles and coughs that are going around where we live. If you're not familiar with it, Propolis is a resinous mixture that bees make in the hive. It contains over 300 compounds that we've identified, including polyphenols and compounds that are antibacterial, including one called pinocembrin, which I hope I'm saying right, which acts as an antifungal. Some studies have shown that propolis can speed the healing of wounds. It's naturally antibacterial and antifungal properties make it great for fighting the sniffles. And the way I use it, at the first sign of any sniffles, sore throat, or coughing at our house, I spray propolis in the throat, and it almost always helps us bounce back really quickly. I also always use propolis spray in my mouth before flying to avoid picking up anything on the plane. I also have unfortunately learned from experience that it works great on burns and cuts for healing. As a listener of this podcast, you can save 15% on propolis and all Beekeepers Naturals products by going to beekeepersnaturals.com dot com forward slash wellness mama and using the code wellness mama all one word all lowercase so again that's beekeepers naturals b-e-e-k-e-e-p-e-r-s-n-a-t-u-r-a-l-s dot com forward slash wellness mama and the code wellness mama to save 15 percent i am so excited to finally be able to share a top secret project i have been working on for literally years because this episode is proudly sponsored by Wellness, a new company I co-founded to create safe, natural, and obsessively tested products for families. I'm sure you've heard that most of what you put on your body gets absorbed through your skin and enters into your body. We turn this idea on its head, creating products that aren't just safe to put on your hair or on your skin or in your mouth, but that are actually beneficial because they contain things that your body needs in a way that can get through the skin. We started with the toughest first, creating the first of its kind natural toothpaste that is free of fluoride and glycerin and that contains ingredients like green tea, neem, and hydroxyapatite to support the mouth. Our hair care, we have shampoo and conditioner for curly and straight hair, and it's free of harmful ingredients, but also contains things like lavender and nettle to support healthy, thick hair. 
I would love for you to be among the first to try it. And you can check it out now by going to wellness.com. So that's wellness with an E on the end. W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S-E dot com. To switch gears a little bit, I'd actually love to talk about the training site a little bit because um, you guys have something called XPT, which I've been doing pretty regularly in my own life. And I think it's a really cool and unique method of training. So to start off, can you explain what that is? Yeah, well, the pillars of XPT are are move, breathe, and recover. And we always say, like, nobody's really doing anything different. It's just how you're putting it together and and just, you know, your kind of take on it. And um, and so XPT was just a natural extension of some of the training we have been doing for many years and, and getting great results from. And, and so uh, we work with a woman named Jennifer, and Jen, who I'm very close to, was like, you know, we should figure out a way to share this. And both Laird and I were like, oh, my goodness, like, you know, how are we going to do that? Because we had people, you know, whatever, 10, 15 people coming to the house and we were doing it as this very small group. And so anyway, so, um, breathe, move and recover. It's it's sort of based on some pillars that we think are important. So breathing, which we were really, uh, you know, kind of inspired by Wim Hof. And then since then have added some things. So there's a book by Patrick McEwen called the oxygen advantage, which talks about the real, scientific reasons why we should all just be nose breathing unless, you know, you've just done a hundred yard sprint. And uh, even if you're sitting in your office or how you can use the breath as a tool to up or down regulate, oxygenate your system, get ready for sleep, whatever it is. And I always, I always say it's, you know, it's, it's free and you can do it anywhere. And it's, it's the most essential thing we do. So breathing is a huge cornerstone. Um, we actually have an app uh, that has many breathing routines on there and then move, which, you know, our bodies are meant to move and, and people sometimes probably think, Oh, Laird and I, all we, all our training is just killing ourselves. And that's not true. I think real functional movement and then getting your heart rate up in a significant way twice a week. I don't think it's about killing yourself. I think it's just about trying to move and move correctly consistently and then recovery. And so instead of just saying, Oh yeah, I take a day off active recovery. So using the breath, maybe using heat and ice. We have an underwater pool training that we do where, you know, you're able to do some pretty rigorous training, ballistic training and not smash your joints, but also there's a way to use the water for recovery. So XPT kind of tries to encompass some of these thoughts and there's different levels. You know, the pool is a little more, um, you know, kind of regulated and who gets to teach it and things like that, because it's pretty serious, but it's also pretty eye-opening and pretty fantastic. Um, so XPT is, is just an extension of some of the training that we were like, oh, this, this is really good. And when you guys do it at your house, at XPT, you have an element of cold often as well. Is that right? Yeah. So we have the heat and ice. And so our saunas are about 220 and then obviously a 32 degree ice tub. And, um, you know, I always tell people with ice, if you go to lift weights uh, you don't want to ice close to lifting weights. You want to let that tearing and that inflammation and that swelling, you want, you want to let that happen. Heat is always, is always good. Now, if I was, let's say a basketball player and at halftime, for some reason, if I could get in an ice tub for a few minutes, that would help my performance. So it's, it's understanding where to use these modalities in, in ways that they support you. So obviously they're both great for recovery. Ice is good for hormone regulation, mood enhancement. Heat has all kinds of benefits. If people want to look at the work of Dr. Rhonda Patrick, she has a lot of studies talking about the benefits of 
heat and and the recovery and and things like that. So we we definitely use use that in in a pretty rigorous way. And what I what I tell people is, you know, Rubbermaid has giant, you know, kind of tubs with a drain if like you and your friends all got together and sort of contributed ice two times a week. There would there is a way to do it and I I know it's not that easy, but it it does make a big difference. Or even if they just take, you know, 30 second as cold as they can showers at the end of each day, there's benefits there as well. Yeah, for sure. And what I've seen in the research, like you said, saunas, there's so many benefits for cardiovascular. And I've read that using it after exercise, for instance, can also be beneficial to improve the effects of exercise. Um, and and with cold, I'd love to go a little deeper on that because I think women especially tend to resist the idea of cold because it seems so awful when you first do it. And it's a regular part of my life as well. Like several times a week, I'll spend time in the cold plunge. But I'm curious, like talk a little bit more about why the cold can be so beneficial and how to start that if it's something that seems really scary to you. Well, it is scary. I mean, I think people have to realize it's a primal fear. The number one thing you could do is when you get into whatever cold you're in, um, obviously a lot of people are doing cryo, so that's a different uh, different thing. But you, if you get into it, I always say, hold your nose, slide under and let the cold pass over your face. Because now what you've done is you've actually triggered your body to be prepared to be in that environment. It's actually weirdly easier. So if they're using ice, if you're sitting in ice uh, and let's say after a few 10, 15 seconds, your toes because of all your nerve endings or your fingertips are burning and you think, I can't stay in here. What you could do is slide them out until you start getting used to that environment. The other thing people can do that really does help you is nose breathe seven seconds in and seven seconds out. And what you'll do is you'll put yourself, the first 30 seconds is the hardest. You put yourself into your parasympathetic. So you'll override your primal impulse to get the hell out of cold because that's what it is. I mean, you see people have a, a like a visceral response. So you've got hormone regulation. Um, if, you know, for girls, there, there's a lot of uh, discussion around uh, brown fat and cellulite, that it can improve all of that. And, and quite frankly, mood, mood enhancement is a big one for the cold. I think based on studies that the heat is still the king of all, I do, based on overall health benefits. But the ice is something that when you can touch, I, what I say about the ice is in a way it's meeting yourself. I'm uncomfortable. I'm afraid. I'm going to find the way to calm myself down in that state. If you can take that tool to everyday life, then I think that this is what the benefits of training is really about. Training is not about like, hey, I have 8% body fat and wow, it's can I make my organism function better in everyday life? And the cold certainly does that. And again, it's you having to deal with you and you can't hide. And then you go, oh, I I found the way. I found the way through my breath and through calming myself down to manage that stress. I 100% agree with that. To me, the cold, it's never, I wouldn't call it fun, but it is the easiest form of meditation I know how to do because when you get in that cold, it's easy to have a singleness of focus with your mind on just your breath. And you're not worried about your to-do list or what you need to meal plan or any of those things. You're able to just calm and focus. And I think also what you said is so important about training and being able to do something that's difficult, getting comfortable with the discomfort and stretching our mind's idea of what we're able to do. And for me, that's the same reason I love to start every year with a pretty extended water fast is that when you go without something even as simple as food that you would normally eat every day, it teaches you about a toughness that's in you that you may not see every day. You may not always encounter. And I think that has 
a rollover effect into parenting and into business and into relationships when we find that kind of like inner strength. And obviously you can speak to that much better than I can as an athlete. But um, I think that's just a beautiful analogy that you presented. Yeah. I mean, I think for me at this point in my life, if everything doesn't feed everything, then it's probably not worth doing overall. Like, so what books am I reading? What food am I eating? What exercise am I doing? Who am I spending time with? If all of this for the most part is not, you know, feeding the greater good and my ability to function at a higher level, which would mean hopefully react less, love more, be less fearful. And, and again, meeting yourself in a pure way, you know, having 90 things to do in one day and being super stressed out and getting it all done. That's a different kind of challenge. And I think a lot of us confuse that with actually stripping everything away and going, okay, now I'm in, in a discomfort that, um, is, is actually good for me. That's the other thing is I'm looking for positive stresses in my life, things that they're stressful, but they're actually positive. And um, I think those are important to, to have a few of them. Such a good point. And I'm also curious, I'm always fascinated by highly successful people and, and you manage parenting and a successful relationship and multiple businesses with Laird. I'm always so fascinated by people who achieve at that level and what their day-to-day looks like and what the non-negotiables are that make your daily or pretty regular list of things that you that are important enough to be part of your life. So to whatever degree you're comfortable, can you just kind of share what a normal routine looks like for you? Yeah, sure. I think, you know, I also think, you know, people go, oh, can you have it all? It's like, well, I don't know if you can have it all all the time. I think you can have it all a different, spread out differently. And, and I think that that for me is first your perspective. So my perspective starts with my expectation is not to be perfect. Uh, my expectation is not to believe I'm in control. I, I have, I try to be, you know, have a level of order and try to be as in charge and organized as I can be, but I'm not delusional any longer thinking, oh, I, I'm in control and I faced all my fears and all that. It's like, yeah, no, I, in fact, it's quite the opposite. So I think I come with a, pr- a pretty practical, uh, perspective on things. And then you have buckets, right? Like you have your family buckets, your self-care buckets, your work buckets. And I would put my relationship bucket almost separate from my family bucket in some ways, because it is sort of in some ways a very different language a little bit. And, and then I just pick off what is the most important thing at that time? So I wake up in the morning, obviously um, Laird's up before me because he just is. He's kind enough. The dishwasher gets unloaded. So when I come down, I deal with girls breakfast and get ready the chaos of school. Um, oftentimes he's the one who will take them in the morning. Then we train. And um, having said that, if I have a, a shoot or meeting, sometimes my training might go by the wayside on that day. But typically I train right away. Yesterday I trained at 730 in the morning. And then it usually goes into, you know, sort of a good chunk of hours towards work. And then back to family, kids, dinner, preparing dinner, cooking dinner. And then maybe, you know, sort of another 45 minutes of of responding to emails and, and what have you. But again, this is the overall set. And what I do is I have flexibility in understanding like, hey, my day's shot today. I have a shoot and three meetings. I'm not going to get to train. I may not even be the one picking up my kids. And I'm going to just chill out and relax in that. Because I think what people make a mistake is, is when things get 
shifted or they have to adapt or it's not how they want it, they really get stressed out. And I think that the powerful thing is to have acceptance and be like, well, this is what's happening today. But I'm very good about focusing on one thing at a time, but many of them in the day. Such a good point. Yeah, you can't have everything all the time, but you can have it all sometimes. I think that's such a good perspective. Um, And often for moms, it does feel like we have to try to do all the things all the time. And so taking that step back and that deep breath is really helpful perspective. Um, A question I love to ask for the end of interviews is if there's a book or number of books that have really dramatically influenced your life, if so, what they are and why. Well, I don't, I mean, I think it's always a combination of things that, um, you know, depending on where we are, like in our lives, I, you know, I recently read, I won't say it completely changed my life, but I, I read, uh, I'll just share with you some of the recent stuff I've been reading, um, Becoming Supernatural by Joe Dispenza. Sometimes for me, I'm, I'm very analytical and also, I I go back to very old habits of survival. So when I was a kid, I I didn't have a particularly secure childhood. And so, you know, he'll sort of say you're living in your one, two, and three, your lower chakras, right? Which is just really about survival. It's like food and shelter. and, And it doesn't really allow you to get into the mystical, right? The and, and even though I, I, I'm a big dreamer, I am, sometimes I recognize I spend too much time in that weird low, my lower self. And so reading that just kind of reminded me, even having emotions of anger or being, having things when I'm having it with people, you know, he calls them self-limiting emotions. It's like when they start to bubble up and I go, okay, that is actually going to hurt me. So it's not even worth it. And I think that that at this time in my life was a great, was a great reminder. I recently read um, Ryan Holiday's book on stillness and, and I have to always, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, to be more still. I'm trying to think of like a book that just blew my head open and sort of made me look at everything different. But I think it's just been a constant accumulation of, okay, now I'm ready to receive this message at whatever time in my life. And so those are the more recent that I'm because I'm really trying at this phase in my life to not try to control everyone's feelings, to being comfortable that not everyone's going to like me or agree with me and that I might be the bad guy sometimes, to trying to drop information off regardless of other people's reactions and and to but to be in love. That's the other thing though is like how do I try to stay in love? Cuz I I can I can get mean is comfortable for me because that's connected to fear. And so I have to really always manage that and just try to keep stripping it, stripping it down and taking ownership of the things that are triggering me. That was a big one. I read a book last year by Byron Katie. And it's like, if I'm in a situation and you say something to me and I respond strongly, not only is it probably true, but it's a trigger for me because it's something that I recognize I'm trying to deal with. So I think there's been some stuff recently where, you know, you just keep looking back at yourself and the ownership. And if I had a new baby, there was a book called, uh, I believe it was like, keep your, hold your children as close as you can. What was it called? And it basically said, you know, like until your kids were like 11 or so you have the great, that's your time to influence them because then their friends will start to influence them. 
hold on to your children as long as you can. I believe it was called. That was a very good book as far as parenting. But yeah, I don't, I don't know uh, that I'm a person who would like be going along the road uh, and read a book and then would switch. But right now those, those books continued to help, you know, kind of impact my thinking. I love that. I'll make sure those are all linked in the show notes. And I think what you said about triggers is so vital as well. I have a friend who says never waste a trigger, meaning like triggers are a really good insight that there's something going on there. And so rather than like lean into that anger or lean into whatever it is, use that as an opportunity for self-reflection and to figure out what's going on. Um, Because it really can be a gift if you let it kind of teach you versus letting yourself just fall into the anger of it. Um, And that's also interesting what you said about fear and anger being an easier state. I can totally understand that and see that. And that's a beautiful point to stay in love and kindness instead of that. I think that's also a perfect place to wrap up. I'll make sure all those books again are linked in the show notes as well as all the resources we've talked about. But if someone wants to stay in touch with you and follow your work and learn more about XPT, where can they find all of that? Uh, XPT is xptlife.com. And like I said, we have a breathing app that, you know, it's hard to meditate on your own. So one of us, either Laird or myself or Mark Roberts or PJ um, Nestler, who's, you know, they're incredibly talented movement uh, and programming people that we are fortunate to work with. They'll run you through. It can be short or longer, depending on what your realities are. And I'm on Instagram. It's uh, just Gabby Reese. But, you know, I always encourage people that, you know, it's also the reminder that kind of everybody is doing the best they can. But, um, you know, even though life is scary and having kids is scary and all of that, I think sometimes when we learn to surrender into it, which is, is incredibly challenging, believe me, there's something that happens that's easier. And I have really learned that in the last few years about, I can't make it different than it is. So can I sort of surrender to, to certain things? And, um, and even with your kids, you know, that's an, that's a big lesson. If you sometimes can surrender and not put up the resistance, whatever it is that they're going through, especially that you don't like, they usually will get through it faster if you don't put up resistance. That's a great point and a perfect place to end. Gabby, I know you're very busy. Thank you so much for spending time today. This was so much fun. Thank you. And uh, I hope everyone is making sure, even if it's for a few minutes, just to take care of yourself first, because I find that to be the best first line of defense. Absolutely. And thanks to all of you for listening and for sharing one of your most valuable resources, your time with both of us today. We're so grateful that you did. And I hope that you will join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time. And thanks as always for listening.